The holiday season begins almost exactly a month from today. And the Jewish holiday season is composed of four independent specific holidays, the first of which is Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, which is four weeks from today. Then a week later, you have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And after that, just a few days after that, you have the holiday of Sukkot, which where we eat outdoors in the booths uh, and shake the lulav. And then the final holiday is called Simchat Torah, which is a celebration of the Torah, where we dance, finish off the annual cycle of the Torah reading, and begin anew. So those are the four primary holidays in the holiday season. And what we're going to try to accomplish and achieve is to cover each holiday individually uh, over the next four Tuesdays. Which means that today we'll be covering the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. So I want to try to accomplish two things over the next hour. I want to cover some of the technical aspects of the holiday. Exactly how we celebrate it. What are some of the various customs. And then also talk a little bit about the deeper significance. The meaning behind the various customs. What we're trying to accomplish and achieve on this specific day. Because in Jewish life, it's important to remember both things, the body and the soul. The body is the specific action that we take, and there are so many, so many different traditions. You know, they say that there are 613 commandments in the Torah, and the Bible. In reality, there's even more than that. Those are just biblical commandments. Then you have all the stuff that the rabbis added. Then you've got customs that have been built up along the way. So Judaism is a lot of different rituals and obligations, so on and so forth. And they're all great. But it's also to remember the soul. And the soul is what you're trying to accomplish and achieve when you do that particular action. What the intention is. And so it's important to... Always look at everything, every custom, every tradition, every mitzvah in that light. What is the body and what is the soul? And so we're going to try to cover both of those aspects when we talk about Rosh Hashanah. So the first thing to understand when you're exploring Rosh Hashanah is what is Rosh Hashanah? You know, we commonly call it the Jewish New Year, right? Mm -hmm. But the word Rosh Hashanah doesn't actually mean New Year at all. Rosh is the Hebrew word for head. So Rosh Hashanah actually translates as head of the year, not New Year. And in fact, if you look at the calendar system in the Torah and the Bible, the calendar system there lists Nisan, the month that the Jewish people left Egypt, the month of Passover, as that as being the first month of the year, numerically. So what is Rosh Hashanah? Why do we make such a big deal out of it? And what does head of the year mean? So ask yourself this. When you think of your head, right? You think of your head, la cabeza. I know, I know. What is the chief primary responsibility of the head? The most important job that the head has is to organize and coordinate the activities of the body. Right? 
head makes the decision what to do, where to go, to think, to feel, everything that's happening, breathing, uh, all of the necessary systems that are required are all being managed and directed by the head, 100%. That's its responsibility first and foremost, to fulfill that function. And according to the head's health, according to the head's expertise, so too the body will function. If you see well, if you can process the images well, you can follow through and walk. If you can't, it affects the ability of the hand and the foot and every other part of the body to do its job. So first and foremost, head means the director, the manager of the rest of the body, of the rest of the system. And Rosh Hashanah is called Rosh Hashanah because it is the day which manages and directs and coordinates the rest of the year. So it's the head of the year. When we call it the Jewish New Year, it's really a misnomer. It's not an effective, accurate translation of what the holiday actually is. Step one, Rosh Hashanah, head of the year. Why is this day the head of the year? What is special about this day that on this day, we are able to manage and coordinate the activities that are going to happen over the rest of the 360 something days? There has to be a reason why this day specifically, God chose and say, make, said, make this day holy, Blow the shofar on this day because on this day you have the ability to secure a positive result for all of the rest of the days of the year. That's what we're trying to determine. So what happened on Rosh Hashanah? Well, most people, if you ask them what happened on Rosh Hashanah, they would tell you that it is the day when the world was created. Right? What are we counting? Well, 5,779 years, right? You can pick your seat. Take coffee, tea, or munchie. Regards from Maya. 5,779 years. And when do we start counting a new year? Another number after Rosh Hashanah. So most people assume that the day of Rosh Hashanah celebrates the day that the world was created. Because, hey, you count a new year from creation starting right after that day. But that's incorrect. The day of Rosh Hashanah commemorates the day when Adam and Eve were first created, which is day six in creation. So why is Rosh Hashanah celebrated on that day? It's not really the new year. But it is the day that we commemorate the creation of Adam and Eve, the first human beings. And human beings, although very flawed, right? Everyone's got imperfections. But human beings are the most capable of all creations of the world. They stand at the apex of society. Everything else was created for human beings. That's not to say that we're better than any animal or any tree or any rock, but our capacity, what we're capable of, is greater. And so therefore, 
when God created the world, everything else was created. And on day six, Friday afternoon, right before the seventh day, when God would rest for the first time, Adam and Eve were created. And so we say, okay, this is the day when human beings were created for the first time. This is the day when human beings every year should stop for a second and devote their attention towards what their plan is for the coming year. Right? Imagine the head. Imagine if your head took a break. Imagine if your head took a break from all of the things that it has to do every single day. Right? You have to breathe and you have to eat and you have to sleep and you, all the different activities that you have to do. You have to go to work and you have to go to school and you have to come home and spend time with your family and your friends. Imagine if your head took a break. It did absolutely nothing but stop for a second and calculate who he is, where she is, what her life is about, what are his goals, what are his missions, is he living up to that or not, is she making progress, right? Imagine if the brain, your head, took a time out to do that. How much more effective would your life be? And think about it, your head would actually be living up to its full potential, not just as a manager in the moment, making sure that you're staying alive, but as an intellectual faculty, really considering what the purpose of my existence is and whether or not I'm living up to that. Well, that's what Rosh Hashanah is, and that's why it's called Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is a day where we do that as a community, as a people, for the rest of the year where we stop, take a time out, separate ourselves from everything else that's going on, spend a little extra time in the synagogue, spend a little extra time with our family, say some extra prayers, and really calculate, all right, if I'm not just living, if I'm not just existing and going through the motions, but I really want to maximize this life, because hey, this is the day when Adam and Eve were first created, and they were created with so much potential, so much to accomplish and achieve. So if I'm really considering it like that, and now I'm asking myself, where am I holding? Am I moving this forward? Am I advancing the cause of humanity, the reason for why I was created? Or am I just kind of existing? As my uncle likes to say, am I just taking up parking spaces? That's what Rosh Hashanah is. So first and foremost, we understand that's our intention. Head of the year, Stop, take a moment, take a break, and reflect, just like the head should be doing. And your head should be doing that on a regular basis. Once a day, once a week, once a month, on a person's birthday, your head should find time where it can stop, time out, and really reflect. Rosh Hashanah is our chance to do that for the entire year. Okay. What else do we try to accomplish and achieve on Rosh Hashanah? Well, we talk about God as our king. Proclaim God as our king is one of the main functions of the day. And in fact, when you go through the prayer book, the Jewish uh, uh, prayer book for Rosh Hashanah, which is called the Machzer, the liturgy there specifically changes words and inserts king, 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 king multiple times throughout the prayers. Some of those changes we maintain all the way through Yom Kippur. Why? God has to hear that he's our king makes him feel good? Come on, that's a very petty image of God. So why is it so important for us to talk about God as a king? 
especially on this day of Rosh Hashanah. Right? Well, think about it. Go back to Adam and Eve for a second. Okay? What was so special about Adam and Eve? They were created in the Garden of Eden. Right? And they made a lot of mistakes, and they got kicked out, and they ruined um, nudity for everybody. Because as you might know, Adam and Eve didn't wear clothes until they messed up and ate from the Tree of Knowledge. And now it's no longer socially acceptable to walk around without clothes, Robert. <clears throat> now, I wasn't saying that to you specifically. But in all seriousness, they understood when they were created that they were created for a meaning and a purpose. I mean, they, they looked around and they saw God had just created in six days an amazing, complete world. And then the masterpiece of God's creation, them. So they understood they were here for an intention. And when they accepted God as their king, what they were saying was, we recognize we have a duty, we have a responsibility. See, the funny thing about a king is, you can't be a king without a people. You know, they often, they say this term, a king in exile. It's not really a king. It's just a guy that has famous family members or maybe he's got a lot of money, but he's not a king. In order to be a king or a queen, any monarch, you need to have people that accept you as a king. If not, you're not a king. You could be a tyrant, you could be a dictator, you could be lots of terrible things, you can exert influence and authority, no problem. But to be a king, you have to have a nation. And that nation has to accept you as their king. If not, you're just a guy with a lot of money or a lot of power, and that's it. So the point of coronating God, which is one of the main themes of the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, as we're gonna read in just a minute, is that it's a day where we say to ourselves, what is my relationship with God? What's my relationship with God? God needs to hear me say that he's king? Come on. It's about me asking myself that question. What's my relationship? I believe in a higher power. I think it's possible. I'm not so sure. That, those might be some of the thoughts. I kind of feel like God exists, but I don't know if God's involved in my detailed everyday life, maybe just in the big stuff. Maybe he was here and the world is just cruising on autopilot. Maybe now it's just subject to nature. I don't know. What is it? And this process of introspection, asking ourselves these questions and going over them in our mind starts to lead us to a point where we say to ourselves, well, wait a second. If I do believe that God created the world and God created me, why do I exist? Why do I exist? Mom and dad had a fun time together. That can't be the only reason. Why am I here? Must be a purpose. There must be an intention. And if I start to recognize that and I accept that, then I start to say, well, I guess if God put me here and I recognize his influence here in the world, then I'm like a subject. Recognizing the king's authority and wanting to do what the king is asking me to do. That's the idea. That's why we talk about coronation. It's about reflecting on that relationship. And for everyone, that relationship is different, but everyone needs to spend time asking themselves, what does that relationship look like? Is it just something, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer, and you kind of just take it for granted, or is it something that you really think about? Day of judgment, okay? Another theme that you will see popular in the liturgy. 
Why is it a day of judgment? Well, if you talk about God on a throne, what's the other aspect that a king does? A king judges their citizens. Most kingdoms don't have separate judiciaries. That doesn't generally exist in, uh, in, in, in the nobility. The king is also the judge, the jury, not always the executioner, but in essence, that's what a king is. They're the highest law of the land. So if we start to talk about God as our king, it's not just accepting the fact that God has influence in our life. It's also accepting the fact that God determines the course of our life. Now, that doesn't take away our choices. We still have free choice. But God is waiting for us to show our good behavior, to show our positive actions and positive deeds as a way of validating our continued blessings. You have to create the vessel for the blessing. Right? Just like you got to go buy a ticket in the lottery to win. And, and that is not an endorsement to go and buy a lottery ticket. And I'm not saying if you do, you will win. I have to make sure that I don't get sued. But in all seriousness, you have to create the vessel. So that is your responsibility. And so when you show up on Rosh Hashanah, it's a day of judgment. It's a day where God says, okay, we're in this relationship. We're communicating. We're talking and so on and so forth. How's your behavior been? Have you lived up? to what you think your life should be, or have you fallen short? So it's all part of that introspection. And yes, we think about our relationship with our parents, okay? Or if you're lucky enough to have children, think about your relationship with your kids. You wanna give your kids good things and you wanna spoil them, thanks. But at the same time, you want your kids to earn it. And you know that if they don't, at some point, you have to discipline them. You have that responsibility. If you don't, you're not a good father. You're not a good mother. So there's a balance that exists there in that parent-child relationship, and it's the same thing in our relationship with God. So yes, God wants to give us good things, but he also got us to discipline us. And so Rosh Hashanah is a time where we consider what that discipline is. Not in, a, in an arbitrary fashion, Oh, you did something bad, you get caned. It works in Singapore, oddly enough. But we're talking about in a natural consequence fashion. You do good things, you plant seeds, trees grow. You have food, you eat. You don't do good things, you don't plant seeds, the field lays fallow, you starve. Same idea here. You act, you do the right thing, you put out good energy, good things come back to you. And so that's the conversation that we're having with God as our king in this moment of judgment. Here's some interesting things that also happened on this day, which we don't necessarily associate in the prayers, but are kind of hinted to. Prayers of the matriarchs. So when we talk about matriarchs, we have Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Not all. Okay, so Sarah, um, Rebecca, Rachel, not Leah, but Hannah, who was Elijah's mother, all four of those women had fertility issues, had trouble bearing children, some more serious than others. Sarah, as we know, was in her 90s. She had a child. And they all prayed, and their prayers were answered on Rosh Hashanah, meaning that their children or child was born 
roughly nine or ten months after Rosh Hashanah. So that tells us this is an, a special time for prayer. For whatever reason. We talked about it earlier. This is a special time for prayer. And so we allude to that as well. Um, it's, in, in my opinion, it's one of the most beautiful haftorahs in the, in the book is the Haftorah that we read on Rosh Hashanah, which is the story of Elijah's birth. How Elijah's mother didn't have children, and her husband, Elkanah, had another wife, because they had multiple wives. Don't ask me how they managed it. I can never figure that out. But uh, they had multiple wives. The other wife had a lot of children, and she did not have any children, and she was really jealous. And Elkanah said, don't worry, I love you, etc., 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 and finally, one day she goes to the temple on Rosh Hashanah and she shows up and she's standing there praying and she's praying in such a heartfelt way that her lips are moving, but you can't hear any sound. And the high priest thinks she's drunk, thinks she's mumbling. So he tells her, drunk woman, get out of the temple. You're not allowed to go into the temple if you've had liquor, alcohol, anyone, even a priest is not allowed to. And she says, what are you talking about? No liquor has come across, no wine has come across my lips. I came here to pour out my soul in front of God. And Ailey, the high priest, realized, whoa, whoa, this is a special lady. So he blessed her, whatever you prayed for should come true. And he, she says, I prayed for a son, and if it will happen, I will let my son be raised here in the temple. And that's exactly what happens. And Shmuel, her son, would go on to become the prophet Samuel, who would coronate Saul, David, Solomon, become one of the biggest prophets in Jewish history. And after he turned three years old, she kept her word. She brought him to the temple, and he was raised by the priests in the temple. So we know that this is a special time for prayer because we've seen our ancestors use this as a time for the most special of prayers. Joseph was freed on this day. A man who was probably one of the most successful people in Jewish history, dealing with tragedy, with trials, tribulations, and constantly able to overcome. Sold into slavery by his brothers, accused of sexual assault and imprisoned, and finally made to second in command of the entire Egyptian empire, which was the greatest civilization at that time. And Joseph, when were his prayers answered? On this day. So we see that there is a special connection between this day, this moment, and, uh, and the prayers that we are trying to accomplish and achieve. Let's move forward. So what are some of the things that we do before Rosh Hashanah? Some of the technical stuff. On the eve of Rosh Hashanah, we have a tradition called annulment of vows. An annulment of vows is something that we, it's a paragraph that we say, where we essentially say in front of a group of friends, Anything that I took upon myself to do, I ask for forgiveness if I did not live up to that. Any vow, oath, prohibition, anything that I took and said, hey, this is something I'm going to try to accomplish and achieve, and I fell short, I'm asking that it be annulled. And in Jewish law, when you take a vow, it's binding. If somebody says in front of two or three people, I vow to do X, Y, and Z, or to not do this, or to not eat this, you're not allowed to do it. And if you do, there are serious consequences. And one of the ways you can annul that vow is if you bring a group together and you explain the rationale and the reason for why you're annulling it, and so on and so forth. So why do we do this on the eve of Rosh Hashanah? Because we want a fresh start. 
And the first step in a fresh start is breaking free of the past. You can't move forward if you're still stuck in the past. So you need to stop, recognize, hey, there were things I didn't do this year that I intended to, areas where I fell short, but that's behind me. I'm done with that. I'm breaking free. I'm moving into a new mode. I'm starting fresh. I'm starting a clean slate. So annulment of the vows. You do not blow the shofar on the day before Rosh Hashanah. Now, why is that significant? The reason that's significant is that we actually start blowing the shofar a month before. So this week, we started blowing the shofar every morning, just a couple of blasts. Even though it's not biblically required, it's not the actual commandment to blow the shofar that only applies on Rosh Hashanah, but it's a way of starting this process that the shofar inspires, this process of introspection, this process of return, which we're going to talk about in great detail in just a second. And so it's just a custom to start blowing the shofar early, but on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, you do not blow the shofar because you want to separate between what is custom and what is mitzvah, what is commandment, what is Jewish law. And I think that's a really important point. And sometimes it gets lost in Judaism. We have so many different customs and so many different traditions, but it kind of gets lost as to what is a biblical commandment and what is a nice custom. And I'll tell you, it's my pet peeve, so I'm going to bring it up, but a perfect example, when people have a meal, usually of some kind of ceremony or so on and so forth, everybody always goes and makes a big deal out of the Hamotzi prayer, right? You call up that old uncle, the one that reads Hebrew, and he gets up there and he takes a piece of bread and everyone claps, and then they could take their keep off and put it back in their pocket. But in all seriousness, everyone makes a big deal out of the prayer hamotzi, but they never say grace after meals. Grace after meals is a biblical requirement. Making hamotzi before you eat bread is a rabbinic tradition. Well, obviously a biblical commandment is much more severe than a rabbinic tradition. But we need to understand what is what. So this is a perfect example where we blow shofar. It's great to blow shofar. And it's powerful. Even today, this morning, it starts thinking. The process is moving. It's great. It's fantastic. But it's not biblical. It's a custom. And that's why you make this stop the day before. And it reminds you, that was that. But now it's for real. Tomorrow, the next day, Rosh Hashanah, this is for points. It's important that we have that background and we know what are nice things to do. And what is a real important tradition and principle. And this is... This is something that is in a lot of different traditions, even on Passover on the Seder. The Seder has tons of different aspects to it. They're all customs. They are not biblical requirements. Even drinking four cups of wine is not a biblical requirement, according to most people. But if you don't eat bitter herbs, then you missed out on one of the mitzvahs of the Seder. So it's important to always know what's what. Okay. What do we do on Rosh Hashanah? We light candles. That's the way we usher in a holiday. That's the way we celebrate. We bring warmth and the ladies in our life are uniquely charged with doing that. So we light candles the first night and the second night. Now, when do you light candles? Typically you light candles right before it gets dark because you wanna do it right before the holiday starts. Uh, on Rosh Hashanah, you can, because it's a holiday, you're allowed to kindle fire even after the holiday starts. It's different than Shabbat. 
Most of what you refrain from doing on Shabbat, you refrain from doing on Rosh Hashanah, except for activities connected with food, like lighting the fire. But you can't light an original flame because the, the thought process is you could have lit the original flame before Shabbat or before Rosh Hashanah, and then you just have it lit and you can always light an additional candle if you need to cook food. So that's the way we do it. We light a big candle, and then when you want to light candles or you want to cook or whatever it is, you can take an additional flame from the existing one. So you don't have to light candles on Rosh Hashanah at that exact time like you do on Shabbat. Anyway, sunset comes, you light your candles, you make the Shechianu because it's a new holiday. So the women, as they light candles, they make this new prayer of Shechianu and they light their candles. The second day, you wait a little later to light your candles because you want to make sure that it's completely the second day and you want to make a Shechianu again. Now, this is interesting. It's a little technical, but I think we can appreciate this. When you light the candles the second day and you want to make the Shechianu on the second day, right? you need something new. You already lit candles for Rosh Hashanah once, so it's not the first time you're doing this tradition, which is normally what you need to do in order to make Shechianu. When do we make Shechianu? When we do something for the first time that we didn't do all year, we make Shechianu. But you just lit candles yesterday for Rosh Hashanah, so what do you do? You eat a new fruit. So you take a new fruit that you are going to eat that you did not eat during that year, you bring it to your dinner table the second night of Rosh Hashanah, and the woman look at that fruit when they make the shafianu as they're lighting the candles. Cover all your bases. That's what you do. And then after you light your candles and you make kiddush, you eat your fruit. And you can get pretty funky with the fruit. Dragon fruit, leeches, uh, not leeches, 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 leeches. don't eat leeches. Um, sabra fruit, you can get lots of cool fruit, but that's the tradition associated with it. Okay, on Rosh Hashanah we say, L'Shana Tova. Everybody hears that saying. They start, you can start wishing people now, L'Shana Tova. What does the word L'Shana Tova come from? Well, that's actually the first half of the saying but we live in a very truncated society where we, we don't have a lot of time. The full statement is L'Shana Tova Tikatev V'Techatev, which means for a good year, may you be inscribed, may you be written, and may you be sealed. Here's an interesting thing though. Our tradition is that after the first night of Rosh Hashanah, we do not use that phrase anymore because we're so confident that you've already been written in the good book we don't even talk about writing anymore. We move straight on to sealing. So people say, Gmar Khatimatova, which means you should be completely sealed for good. So it's interesting. You talk about, well, we're not being arrogant, we're being confident, and there's a difference. Confidence means we know that we have this relationship, we know we've done the right thing, we've put the right thoughts in, and therefore God is gonna give us what we need to have a good year because Ultimately, God is like any parent that wants to see their child succeed. And that's the confidence that we're exuding. What are some of the foods that we eat? So let's look at some of the yummy foods. Challah dipped in honey. Okay, so we dip our challah in honey. We do that all the way through the holiday of Sukkot. Why? It's sweet. Apples dipped in honey. So apples dipped in honey is, of course, a unique tradition to Rosh Hashanah. And you make a special prayer 
that is essentially translated may it be your will that you renew our year for good and for sweetness. Now, why do we ask God for a sweet year? What, is, what does it mean, a sweet year? Think about that for a second. I mean, great, honey's wonderful and so on. And by the way, did you know that honey is good on burns? I learned that this year. Hmm. You shouldn't learn it. Um, why a sweet year? You already asked for a good year. You said Shana Tova. Why Umituka? What does that add? So think about it like this. Everything God does, we know is for the best. Right? Ultimately, there's a plan. There's an intention. And so whatever's happening is ultimately for the best. In Aramaic, in the Talmud, it says, Everything that God does is for the best. Great. But it's not always sweet. There are many things that have to happen in this world that are bitter, that are sour. Even if it's for the best, it still doesn't taste very good. So what we're essentially telling God is we're asking for what kind of goodness? Goodness that's revealed. <laughs> you don't have to teach someone that honey tastes good. <laughs> they just have to taste it. And they say, oh, this is delicious. There's a... Um, my son is turning three years old in a couple months. And so there's a tradition. We start, we cut their hair for the first time. And one of the things that they often do is they start learning the olive base, the Hebrew alphabet. So you put honey on the letters of the alphabet, on the Hebrew alphabet, and they touch each letter, they say it, and they taste it. So that they associate the learning of the alphabet with something sweet. You don't have to tell them Right? Jackie Mason says that people were eating alfalfa sprouts. And if you didn't like it and you told a friend, you know what he would tell you? You have to develop a taste. He says, you know why you have to tell, develop a taste? Because it tastes terrible. No one ever tells you to develop a taste for potato chips. Never say that. Why? Because it tastes good. That's why. So it's the same idea. What we're saying to God is, oh, we know that everything you do is, is good. That's great. But we're asking for a sweet year. We're asking for goodness that's visible, that's tangible, that tastes like honey. Okay, we try to avoid sour foods on Rosh Hashanah. So anything that's too acidic and so on, we stay away from. Carrots, uh, which in Yiddish is merin, which means to multiply, which is why a lot of people make tzimis. Mm. You grew up with tzimis, with the mm. carrot dish, right? Why do they do that? That's the reason why a lot of people make that carrot dish on Rosh Hashanah. You have a head of a fish, which is we should be a head and not a tail. Right? We want to be at a head of the year, not the tail. What does it mean a tail? A tail is reactive. The tail follows where the rest of the body is going. The head dictates. So do we want to have a year where we're reacting to the circumstances or where we're dictating? We're moving our life forward as we know it needs to go. Now, having a head of a lamb, there's an additional idea with the head of a lamb because um, it reminds us of the uh, sacrifice that Abraham and Isaac made, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, where God told Abraham to bring his son as a sacrifice. And Abraham knew it was a test, but he still went through it until the last second when the angel told him, just a test. And instead, he sacrificed a ram, which is one of the reasons why we use a ram's horn. 
So some people have a head of a lamb or a head of a ram on the table. It's not our Chabad tradition, but many Sephardic Jews have that custom. We don't use nuts typically in our meals because egos, which is the Hebrew word for nuts, numerically equals 17, which is the numerical equivalent of the word sin in Hebrew. We don't want to remind God of any sins. We have a round challah, sometimes with raisins, adds another level of sweetness, but the round challah represents the cycle of life, the cycle of the year. One year finishes and a new year begins. And that's the way life is. It's incessant. There's no stop, there's no pause. So we're constantly starting a new fresh cycle. And then of course, pomegranates, because pomegranates are full of uh, seeds, just like every human being is full of good deeds. It says that even a wicked person is full of good deeds like a pomegranate is full of seeds. So it's a great reminder that even if you don't think of yourself as a particularly great person, right, you need to change that attitude. Because if you don't think of yourself as something positive, you're not going to be motivated to try and better yourself. Right? I'm a worthless case. It's done. It's over. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too past whatever's happened. I'm stuck. This is who I am. No. Every person is full of good deeds, even when they don't realize it, even without intention. And so therefore, everyone's capable of accomplishing something great and transforming their life and moving it forward. So that's why we eat the pomegranates. Um, about the nuts. Um... Yeah. That's all nuts, or just peanuts, or because we eat walnuts in Tedlach. You have walnuts in your Knedelach? Tedlach. What's Tedlach? It's a dessert. Oh, okay, cool. Maybe. You heard I mean, what I'm talking about? No, I've never heard of Tedlach. Tedlach. T-A-I-G-H-L-A-C-H. What's what kind of dessert is it? It's uh, like a mound of. Um, Soup, nuts, um, and honey, and I've never heard of maraschino cherries. Interesting. And walnuts. Yummy. That's why I asked you if there was a this is, bakery it, up here. Yeah. But you know what? I'm gonna make it myself using those. Okay. The, um, the kickle, kickle with with the uh, kickle with um, break it up. With honey and walnut and maraschino cherries. These are all. These are all. And then you pull it. You pull it apart with the honey. These are all customs. So none of these. Not any nuts. It's a custom. The, so walnut no. The custom is to stay away from all nuts, but it's a custom. But I know Pesach is no peanuts. Well. That's a different. That's different. Right. Absolutely. By the way, these are just some of them. Sephardic Jews. There are Sephardic Jews that eat leeks. Does your family do a lot of the? We actually eat nuts because my like my grandma puts nuts in honey cake. Yeah, we we, yeah. we make honey cake all the time. We don't do it with nuts, but you can. There are Sephardic Jews that eat leeks. They eat um, gourd, which is a unique kind of fruit, um, and they have different prayers for every single thing that they say. We eat um, black eyed peas. Black eyed peas. Some people eat beets. Right. Uh, small beans yeah. or peas. That's another uh, tradition. So they, have, they actually call it like a Seder, a Rosh Hashanah Seder. They have all these different foods that they eat. So there's a lot of different customs as to what you can eat. This is a sampling. All right, let's talk about the shofar because ultimately the biggest mitzvah on Rosh Hashanah is the shofar. When Rosh Hashanah comes, 
if you choose to come here on Rosh Hashanah, and I hope you do, I will blow the shofar 130 times, mm. 130 sounds. Why? Because I get paid per sound. It's a contractual thing. Um, yeah, of course, absolutely. Not in my salary. But in all seriousness, why do we blow the shofar so many times? Uh, and why we don't blow the shofar the day before to separate between yeah between uh, what is custom days and the start. That's exactly why. Separate between the what is biblical and what is a custom. Mm. So let's talk about how we arrived at this number. And again, I think it's important to highlight what is actual mitzvah and what is just a nice addition. So the Torah tells us, it says that this should be a day of blast, a shofar blast. And the word that he uses is yom teruah. Teruah. Now, how do you blow the blast of the shofar? That's the question. We're not sure. What kind of blast is that supposed to be? Is it supposed to be one long blast? What we call a tekiah? Is it supposed to be a three shorter blasts? Which is kind of like somebody that's wailing out, right? A deep, sorrowful, moanful cry. Is that what it's supposed to be? Or is it teruah, which is like these small little blasts, and that's someone that's like crying uncontrollably? All the above. We don't know. The point is we're not sure. So we do all of the above. So therefore, we do all of the above. Now, technically, you see that great paragraph? on the bottom of page one, where it says number nine. Technically, if you blew the shofar just like this, you would fulfill your obligation. You'd be done. Because it says that there's supposed to be a tekiah, there should be a long blast before the, the teruah, as a way of uh, announcing that you're going to blow the shofar. So if you do it like this, you'd be fine. How many is that? 12 blasts, you're good. 30 sounds altogether. Why is it 30 sounds? Because the teruahs are nine, the tekiahs are one, 27, yeah. But we are always going to take the high road. What I mean to say is we're always going to make sure that we err on the side of caution and cover every potential because we are so careful about fulfilling what God wants. So imagine if God told you, Alana, to go get him some ice cream. God says, Alana, I want some ice cream. And you go to the best gelato parlor in town and you show up at the counter and you're stuck. You know why? I don't know what kind of ice cream you want. Ah, you don't know which flavor. God asked you to get ice cream and you don't know which flavor. So what are you gonna do? Are you gonna say, well, listen, most people like chocolate. That's the most popular flavor of ice cream. So I'll just go with chocolate and it'll probably be fine. Oh, of course you're not gonna do that. If God asked you for ice cream, you're gonna get a little sampling of each, right? Some chocolate, some vanilla, probably some butter pecan. And you're going to bring it back and say, hey, I wasn't 100% sure, so I made sure I covered my basis. That's our intention. And by the way, this is something that we do a lot in Jewish tradition. And people might laugh at it, but it's all about how something is important to you. 
If you have a child, God forbid, that has an anaphylactic reaction to eating nuts, right? But it's only peanuts. You're going to make sure they don't come in contact with any nuts. You're not going to take chances. They have an anaphylactic reaction. This is your, your love of your life. So it's all about how important something is as to what are the precautions you're going to take. So when we blow the shofar, we blow every single variation of what that shofar blowing might mean to make sure we've covered all the bases. So is it a loud blast and then a medium blast, a loud blast and a, and a, and, and a small blast, a loud blast, a medium blast and a small blast. And that's how you get all of these different uh, blasts. So these are 30 blasts. Here's 30 blasts. And you'd think, great, you did 30 blasts. You covered all your biblical obligations. Now you're done. But it's not the case. You have to blow some more. <coughs> but before I get into that, I want to take, stop for a second and talk about the shofar itself. So as I said when we started, everything has a technical aspect. It has a body and it has a soul. Technical aspect, come, hear the sounds, you're good to go. Like after, um, after shul, sometimes I'll take my shofar, I'll walk around to people that I know, and I will blow the shofar for them. Uh, people that can't walk to synagogue, either they're ill or for other reasons. Um, now, oftentimes when I blow the shofar for somebody, they're not really having any thought process. They're just not. You know, they're thinking about work, they're thinking about the fact that FSU or UF lost the football game the previous mm. Sunday, whatever it might be. I think FSU actually did lose the game. I don't know. Yes, they did. They did. Thank you. See? Um, my apologies. any event, they still fulfilled the mitzvah. They heard the shofar. They did their thing. But they did not fulfill the intention of why we blew the shofar. They got the body. They didn't get the soul. So why do we blow the shofar? Let's talk about that for a second. The sound of the shofar is designed to inspire us, to motivate us. Uru yishenim mishinatchen. Wake up, you sleeping people, from your slumber. And that simple cry of a child, of someone crying out to a parent, is enough to pierce whatever exterior we placed around our hearts and hopefully inspire us and say, you know what, I need to get back to who I really am. I've put on a show, I've been doing this, I've been doing that, and I've spent all this time and energy on so many different things, I've really neglected what's most important to me. And I need to stop fooling myself. I need to get back to who I am. That's the first intention. And so each one of those blasts touches us in a different way. So if you look at, if you go back and you look at nine, you see a, it says you've got the tekiah is one long unbroken blast. That is more of a, a faith. It's a simple expression, pure and simple. The shavarim, the three shorter blasts, is like a whale, someone that's crying out. And the smaller blast, the two is like somebody that's sobbing. And all of these emotional experiences are real and are relevant because we experience all of them. That's the reality, all of them. At different times in our life, they're all 
pertinent. The question is whether or not you're able to identify and accept it. That's the question. So I'll give you uh, an interesting analogy that's given the fact that the shofar was blown during multiple times throughout Jewish history. It was blown at Mount Sinai, right? Um, it was blown It was blown in the temple, and it was blown when people would go to war. Now look at those three experiences. When somebody's working in the temple, right? Everything is great. Temple, it's pristine, it's pure. There's no distraction, there's no conflict. You're in an absolute serene state. Then you have the blowing at Mount Sinai. Blowing at Mount Sinai, it's commitment, it's conversion, right? All the Jewish people were converting, giving themselves over to the Torah that they were receiving, okay? And then you have blowing of the shofar when you go out to war. When you go out to war, it's a vastly different experience. You're under attack, you're under threat. Your existence is being questioned. You don't know if you're gonna survive. And at that moment, they blow the shofar as well. So a human being can really experience all of these feelings and emotions when they're in shul listening to the shofar. They can say to themselves, hey, look, you know, it's great. I know when my life is clicking in all cylinders and things are flowing and it's smooth, it's ideal, it's wonderful, right? And I make that commitment as to who I am and who I want to be and what I want to do with my life. But what happens when I go through conflict? What happens when I have to face a war? Not a war that's physical and tangible, but a war inside of myself. When I'm not sure who I am. When challenging situations raise themselves and force me to question what life is all about. What happens in that moment? And to me, that's why the terua, that, that short sound, the nine little sounds, that's so powerful because that is the sound that they would blow when they would go into war. That's the sound that they would blow when they were in a moment where they were questioning who they are and what their future is going to be. So these are some of the thoughts that we have when we're listening to the shofar and hopefully it starts to impact us in a real way that we walk away saying, I need to make a change. I need to move my life forward. Okay, so we blow 30 blasts, as I said. Then, if you look at the Musaf, the prayer that we, we, special prayer that we add on Rosh Hashanah, we talk about three things. God as a king, we highlighted that already. We remind God of positive things that we have done as Jewish people, especially the sacrificing of uh, Isaac. Now, stop for a moment. Ask yourself, what's so special about that? God tells Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, Isaac, and I want you to sacrifice him on an altar. Why was that so incredible? So you say, what do you mean? A parent should sacrifice their son? That's crazy, and so on and so forth. That's not such a big deal. 
<laughs> Lana's like, oh my gosh, I don't want to be your child. Um, in fact, during that time, there was a deity called the Molech, a pagan deity, where they used to sacrifice their children. The Torah tells us about it. That was something that existed back then. And in fact, it says you're not allowed to sacrifice your child because it's a form of idolatry. So Abraham knew, because he studied the Torah even before it was given, he knew that this is not something that God allows us to do, and yet God is telling him to do it. So that's test number one. Test number one is when your rationale, when your logic says, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And yet you know this is what God wants me to do. Are you able to transcend your own logic and rationale in order to do it? And furthermore, God told Abraham after he had Isaac, Isaac is the one that's going to continue your legacy. Right? Abraham introduced monotheism to the world, traveled around with Sarah, introducing this idea of belief in one God to thousands and thousands of people all across the land of Israel with their open tent on all four sides, their hospitality. And what does God tell him? Isaac is going to continue on the great work that you've started. And then what does God tell him? Oh, but we've got to sacrifice Isaac on an altar. Well, what do you mean? You told me that Isaac's going to be the man. He's going to keep it going. This doesn't make sense. Now, God, you must have made a mistake. Woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Something was going on upstairs. No, this is what I said. Plain and simple. Abraham didn't question it. If this is what God said, then this is what God said. That ability, that commitment to go beyond what simply makes sense, what you can justify, that is true faith. And so that's something that we ask ourselves. Is our faith strong enough? I'm standing here on Rosh Hashanah and I'm saying, God, give me a good year. I'm going to do what I have to do and all those things. I'm breaking from the past. Absolutely. I'm not going to make the same mistakes. Ask yourself this question. Is my faith strong enough? Not that I would sacrifice a child. Is my faith strong enough that I would stay committed to doing what I know God wants me to do even when it doesn't make logical, rational sense? That's a question that anybody can ask themselves. Even when it doesn't make logical, rational sense, am I still willing to see it through? So we remind God of that story. And then, of course, we talk about the power of the shofar. And during Musaf, we blow the shofar again and in the repetition. And so altogether, you get a hundred blasts of the shofar. And then after that, we blow the shofar again for another 30, 130 blasts. Why the extra 30? There's no real proper explanation. I'm not kidding. 100 blasts, we could understand. 100 is a whole number. It represents completion. Uh, in fact, it's interesting. If you look at what it says in number 10, 100 equals the Hebrew word of schach. What is schach? Schach is the covering of the sukkah. And normally people are like, that's the wrong holiday. Sukkot comes two holidays later. But in reality, Sukkot is the conclusion of Rosh Hashanah. On Rosh Hashanah, we want God to give us a happy, sweet new year. And it's a, kind of a solemn holiday. We pray and so on. And on Sukkot, we tell God that we are confident that you are giving us this great year, so we're going to celebrate. But they're still part of that same thing. So one of the ways that we highlight this is that we begin this process with the blowing of the shofar, and the process finishes when we sit and eat under the schach, under the covering of the sukkah, two weeks later, roughly. 
And then as I said, we blow another 30. In Kabbalah, it says you should blow another 30 after you finish the service. I don't study a lot of Kabbalah, and I haven't called Madonna. Maybe she knows. I should ask her. But that's why we do it. So we do 130 total as a way of covering all of our bases. So as I said, message of the chauffeur, crowning a king, wake up call, a child's cry, the Torah on Mount Sinai was given with blasts of chauffeur, the Akeda, the sacrifice of Isaac was given with the chauffeur, and Mashiach. It says that when the Messiah comes, there will be a large chauffeur blast. And we actually mention it in the prayers. Well, why is that important? Well, it's always important to talk about the Messiah, yeah, but specifically on Rosh Hashanah. Why is that important? Well, think about it. We talked about the head being responsible for organizing the body, for setting a trajectory, how it's important that your head takes a few minutes where it stops what it's doing and it focuses on the bigger picture. The same thing is the, with the head of the year. If you want to stop your life for a minute and you want to come to Shul and you want to reflect on who you are and what you've done over the past year, what you've accomplished and what you haven't accomplished and where you're going, you need to have a direction. You need to have a point that you are trying to get to. Working on yourself and improving yourself and trying to impact the world around you, those are all great things, but to what end? So by setting this as a reminder that there is an end, it's not an end of life, but there is a point that we as Jewish people are working towards to a time when the world will have peace to a time where nations can live positively with each other, where the Jewish people can live in security in their homeland, where goodness is celebrated and godliness is seen. That's what we're working towards. That's the goal. And so therefore, my actions have consequences because there's a goal. And the goal's bigger than myself. I'm a big part of it, but it's not just me. So if I step up to this plate on Rosh Hashanah and I take it seriously and I come with the right intentions and I leave inspired and motivated and changed, I'm going to bring the world that much closer to this goal. And if I don't, then God forbid the opposite. But it's not, I live in a vacuum. My life is inconsequential. I'm one of billions of people. Right? We're never going to accomplish it anyways. It's too terrible out there. There's too much violence. There's too much tragedy. All of these things. Because if that's the, the thought process I have when I'm sitting in shul, I'm probably going to be checking my phone underneath my prayer book. You need to remember that this is a real attainable goal. It's a goal that we've been working towards as a people for a long time, but one that we're getting closer and closer to. And therefore, my actions, they have real consequences. Maimonides puts it so beautifully. Maimonides says, when you get to that point where you have the choice, left, right, think about it like this. Think, imagine that the whole world is set on a scale. Scale. And it's perfectly balanced. And your one action, one action, you might think it's inconsequential. Should you hold open the door for the, the lady crossing or should you not? Something insignificant. That one action can tip the scale and bring the entire world to that time. 
or God forbid the opposite. That's the ability that you have. You don't know which mitzvah is going to be the one. I don't know. We know it and nobody knows. So when we think about that, it changes the way we look at our choices. It makes them that much more valuable. The final mitzvah that we do on Rosh Hashanah, of course, we eat a large meal with our family and friends. Can't skimp on that. And then we have the mitzvah of Tashlech. Tashlech is a tradition that on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, although it can be done later on, you could do it even after the holiday is over, um, before Sukkot, we cast our sins away. And typically you do this, you say a special prayer next to a body of water where there are fish. Excuse me. Why? So, um, a couple of interesting things. Number one, the body of water, by being next to a body of water, water flows. So it reminds us of this idea of our sins flowing away from us, being able to refresh ourselves. Uh, it reminds us of the story of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice that we just talked about because that was done next to a stream of water. And in fact, it says that Satan created a river that Abraham shouldn't be able to cross over. And Abraham still crossed over the river even though it was very difficult. So he was proving how committed he was that even when it was difficult, he was still going to see it through. He had every rationalization to say, ah, God doesn't really want me to do this, but he kept going. Um, anointing a king. Our kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, were anointed next to rivers. Next to rivers. Uh, fish. Why do people have customary to have fish? Fish don't have eyelids. I know. Strange. Fishes do not have eyelids. And so the idea is that they're always looking. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to creep you out. But um, if you become vegetarian after this, then... The idea is that God is always watching us. And so therefore, it's both a positive thing because he's always there and sees what's happening in our lives. But it also means that nothing is hidden. Nothing is concealed. Even if you do it behind closed doors, under your, your, your blanket, God sees all. And finally, God's attribute of mercy. It says that water is a reflection of kindness because it flows continuously. Water doesn't consider where, what's in front of it. It just flows, and it can be a beautiful thing. Unfortunately, it can also be a terrible thing, like we saw with the hurricane recently. So this idea that water flows is similar to the way kindness works. What is kindness? Kindness flows. Kindness is when a person does something without any thought as to whether it's enough or it's too much for the recipient. Whether they deserve to get this or they don't, just give it to them. Give them, give them, give them. Sometimes it's not even in the best interest of the recipient. Sometimes they would be better off if you didn't give them because it enables them. But when you're being kind, you don't think about that. You just give. And what do we want from God on this day? We want God to just be kind. Don't think too much. Every single detail I did, I didn't. Just give. So that's the idea of just like water, we want to remind God of that as well. But really what Tashlich to me is so important is that it's a physical action. You spend that day in shul, right? You're in synagogue praying for an hour, two hours, whatever it is, maybe longer, okay? And you're wrapped up in this cocoon and you feel inspired, you feel motivated. You hear the shofar, you feel changed. That's great. But what happens the minute you leave the synagogue and you re-enter society? The whole thing goes down the drain. Whoop. Exactly like that. 
It's gone. It's lost. And that's why I think Tashach is so powerful. Because you walk to a river, a stream. We have a lake, a, a lake, a pond that's not too far from here. And you're now immersed in the world around you. You are fully entrenched in civilization. All those distractions that were gone a few minutes ago when you were in the protective haven of the synagogue, those, those distractions were all front, right, and center. They're all right there. And now you have to ask yourself, am I still committed to this plan? Am I still devoted towards moving my life forward, towards making a change, towards casting away the sins of the past, the mistakes that I made over the past year, and forging a new, fresh year ahead? Or am I done? That's it. I checked it off the list. I did my time in the synagogue. I survived it. I'm good to go. That's the question that you ask yourself when you step up to that lake and you say this prayer. So it's a great way to transition from all of the wonderful feelings you felt inside of the shul, inside of the synagogue, during davening, during prayers, and transition it out into the real world, into the next step of your life. So it's kind of like a mirror for Pondra. 